Hello, and welcome to McGill Care's webcast series, Supporting Family and Informal Caregivers. I'm Claire Webster, a former caregiver, certified dementia care consultant, and founder of McGill University's Dementia Education Program. I work with a dynamic team of leading healthcare professionals to oversee the program, who include Dr. José Moret from the Division of Geriatric Medicine, and Dr. Serge Gauthier, Professor Emeritus, formerly of the McGill University Research Center for Studies in Aging. McGill Cares is supported by the Amelia Saputo Community Outreach for Dementia Care. The McGill Dementia Education Program offers a very comprehensive range of free resources to educate and support persons living with dementia, family and informal caregivers, healthcare professionals, medical students, and the public at large. One of our most important resources is our Dementia Companion Guide, which is now available in over 10 different languages. It can be downloaded for free on our website at mcgill.ca slash dementia, or you can also purchase a copy on Amazon and all proceeds go to support our program. We also have all kinds of virtual support programs and other educational materials for you. So today we will be discussing a very sensitive topic, but one that we get a lot of questions about. The topic is medical aid in dying in the context of dementia. I would like to state that our program does not take any position on this topic. And the purpose of our webcast is to educate and inform our viewers about the current law in Canada and in Quebec and some of the complex issues that may arise. I was recently attending uh, the Canadian Conference on Dementia in Toronto, and I had the privilege of meeting our guest today. So my guest today is Jocelyn Downey. She has a particular interest in end-of-life care. She is Professor Emerita in the Faculties of Law and Medicine at Dalhousie University. She served as a special advisor to the Canadian Senate Committee on Euthanasia and Assisted Suicide and was involved in several national and provincial expert panels that address end-of-life decision-making and physician-assisted dying. Professor Downey is the author of Dying Justice, a case for the decriminalization, decriminalizing euthanasia and assisted suicide in Canada, which was awarded by the Adian D. Lynch Medal in Bioethics from the Royal Society of Canada. She was named a fellow of both the Royal Society of Canada and the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences and made a member of the Order of Canada in recognition for her work advocating for high quality end-of-life care. Professor Downey will discuss medical assistance in dying and how it could apply to persons living with dementia. Welcome to McGill Cares. Thanks Claire for the invitation to participate in this series. Um, this is an incredibly important topic. I think it should be of interest to people who watch your webcast. So let's look at me through the lens of dementia. As I just said, my sense is that most people's burning questions on this are likely the following. Can people with dementia legally get made? Are people with dementia getting made? And then are advanced requests for made permitted under the law? Should advanced requests for made be permitted under the law? And will advanced requests for made be permitted under the law in the future? So let's look at each of these questions in turn. Can people with dementia get made? The answer is yes. So let's explore how. Well, the eligibility criteria for made are that you must be eligible for health services funded by the government in Canada, 
or you would be, but for a minimum period of a residence waiting period if you moved. You have to be at least 18 years old, be capable of making decisions with respect to your health, have to have made a voluntary request, and have given informed consent to receive medical assistance in dying after having been informed of the means available to relieve suffering, which include palliative care. So persons with dementia can obviously meet these criteria. The final criterion, though, is a bit more complicated. So let's look at it in more detail. Let's unpack it a bit. So to be eligible for MAID, a person has to have a grievous and irremediable medical condition. This means they have to have a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. They have to be in an advanced state of irreversible decline in capability. And the illness, disease, or disability, or the state of decline has to be causing them physical or psychological suffering that is intolerable to them and cannot be relieved under conditions that they consider to be acceptable. So can people with dementia meet this criterion? This set of criteria, I should say. So first, serious and incurable. Yes, clearly dementia is a serious and incurable illness, disease, or condition. Persons with dementia can also be in an advanced state of irreversible decline in capability. Dementia is irreversible. Dementia can take you to an advanced state. Obviously, at the moment of diagnosis, you are not yet there, but eventually you may get there. This is relative to the person, and it's important to know that this can be advanced long before the loss of decision-making capacity. And it's also important to note that proximity to loss of decision-making capacity alone can itself give you the advanced state of irreversible decline. Then also capability. Well, capability can be physical or cognitive, so you can clearly meet this criterion at an advanced state of physical or cognitive decline from dementia. What about enduring intolerable irremediable suffering? Well, dementia can certainly cause people to experience enduring intolerable and irremediable suffering. And remember that suffering in Canadian law, in Canadian made law, is subjective. It is for the person to decide if it is intolerable for them. So some people with dementia can clearly meet this eligibility criterion for MAID. So when you put them all together, people with dementia can meet the eligibility criteria for MAID. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they can have access to MAID, because there are also procedural safeguards that must be met. And there's one that can in particular pose a problem for people with dementia. That is the requirement that immediately before providing the medical assistance in dying, a person has to have an opportunity to withdraw their request. And the clinicians involved have to ensure that the person gives express consent to receive medical assistance in dying. So here's the challenge. As decline and suffering go up in the context of dementia, capacity goes down, decision-making capacity goes down. And the decline in the capability has to be advanced. The suffering has to be intolerable before the capacity is lost. And that's a challenge. So there are several solutions to this problem. One is known as 10 minutes to midnight protocol. And one is known as the final consent waiver. So let me explain each of these in turn. 10 minutes to midnight. This is when a clinician carefully watches a patient, checking in regularly as capacity, as decision-making capacity declines. They take the patient as close to midnight as they can, 
as close to the predicted loss of capacity as they can. And then they say, okay, I'm not gonna be able to tell next week whether you have capacity or not. So you need to make your decision at this time. And you see whether the eligibility criteria are all met and you are at 10 minutes to midnight. Now, access to MAID can be extended somewhat by what's called the final consent waiver. And this is a provision in the law that allows a person where their natural death has become reasonably foreseeable, which means you're on a predictable trajectory toward death and or you're sufficiently temporally proximate. So say three months, you're expected to live for three months. Um, so people with dementia obviously can meet this requirement. Um, the person also has to meet all the eligibility criteria for MAID that we've gone over. Person has to be at risk of losing capacity to consent to MAID, which is obviously a circumstance that attaches to, to dementia. And then this is the final consent waiver bit. You have a written arrangement between the patient and the provider. And in that arrangement, the patient and the, the provider agrees to the provision of MAID, the patient requests the provision of MAID on or before a specified date if the person loses capacity prior to that date. And then you can get made at that point after the loss of capacity, so long as the person doesn't demonstrate resistance or refusal. Now I would note here, it's really important to know that involuntary words, sounds, gestures made in response to conduct, contact, they don't constitute refusal or resistance. So if the clinician touches the arm and the person pulls their arm back, it's involuntary, that's not refusal. Um, but if the person doesn't demonstrate resistance or refusal, and there is this final consent waiver, then the person can have made after they have lost decision-making capacity. You can get made later. But the consequences of the challenge that I identified of those slopes not quite intersecting at the right moment, um, and the limited solutions that we have, the 10 minutes to midnight protocol, the final consent waiver, um, they do mean that some people are dying sooner than they would want to in order to ensure that they can get access to MAID. Some people hit midnight before they can get MAID, before they can get the arrangements made, and so they don't get MAID. Sometimes there are no clinicians available to do the 10 minutes to midnight protocol and the final consent waiver because they're, they take time. Um, and so the person may not be able to get made. So the bottom line is here, people with dementia can, and with some complications, can get access to made, but it's, it's not as good as many people would like to see. Um, so the next question, of course, is, well, are people with dementia getting made? I've said some can. The question is, are they? And the answer to that is yes. Um, let's look at the data on the underlying conditions in circumstances of medical assistance in dying in 2022. Here we have 1,668 cases. 12.6% of these made deaths in 2022 were for neurological conditions. And if you dig into the data on the neurological conditions, you'll see that 9% of these uh, were people with dementia. So some people with MAID, some, some people are clearly getting MAID, um, but it must be recognized that some who would like to have access aren't getting access. Why? Well, um, for all MAID, we have challenges because there are more requests than clinicians can meet. Uh, we also see institutional religious objection. And that's where you have a publicly funded faith-based institution 
saying made is against our religious beliefs and values. And so no made is allowed to happen within our walls. So that creates a barrier to access because not everybody can be transferred out of that facility to one where made is allowed. Now, specific to dementia, you have the challenge of the intersecting point that I mentioned before, where capacity, a decision-making capacity is not intersecting at the right moment with suffering and decline in capability. You also have a lack of understanding of eligibility criteria, because some people, for instance, think that persons with dementia are captured by an exclusion clause in the law, which says that if you have a mental disorder as your sole underlying condition, you can't access MAID, you're excluded from MAID. Some people think dementia is captured in there, it's not. It's expressly left out of that. Even though dementia shows up in, in some definitions of mental disorders, it is excluded from that exclusion. Um, and then some people also don't know about the 10 minutes to midnight protocol. They don't know about final consent waivers or their clinicians don't know and nobody can tell them. And so their experience, they experience a barrier to access to me. So what's a solution? Well, one possible solution that many people are very, very keen on is advanced requests for made. So what I want to talk about now is whether, you know, are advanced requests for made legal? Should they be? And will they be? So first, are advanced requests for made permitted under the law? Well, mostly no. Another way of putting it is sort of. So let's unpack that. Um, as I mentioned before, we have final consent waiver and we have other advanced requests for made. Um, the final consent waiver is after all the eligibility criteria have been met. The other advanced requests are they're understood to mean before all the eligibility criteria have been met, but after diagnosed with a serious and incurable condition, or indeed any time. So you know we have the final consent waiver, but we don't have the other, the advanced request. Because the current law is you must be able to give consent immediately prior to the provision of made, unless you have a final consent waiver, but that's only available after all the eligibility criteria. So as a result, the consequences of this are that there's huge public pressure to amend the law to allow requests that have been made before the eligibility criteria have all been met. So some people argue for before all the eligibility criteria have been met, but after a diagnosis with serious and incurable condition, but before the intolerable suffering, the advanced state of decline. So that would be a case where you've had your diagnosis of dementia, but you're not yet in a state of advanced decline or um, experiencing intolerable suffering. Some people say, though, it could be before any of the eligibility criteria. So before you have a diagnosis with a serious and incurable illness, disease, or condition. So the question then becomes, should advance requests for may be permitted under the law in the future? And the answer to that is, well, that really depends on who you ask. Uh, many people have reflected on this. We have had ex expert committees and panels and reports and academic papers and so on. Um, and the main features of this policy debate about whether we should have made for people with dementia through advanced requests. Well, on the one hand, you have the benefits of it. So it's respectful of autonomy, autonomy being the capacity for self-determination, for charting the course of your own life and your own death. Obviously, allowing it respects autonomy. Benefit is it alleviates suffering because somebody has identified a state as being one of intolerable suffering and it allows for the ending of that state of suffering. There's consistency with, with the approach we take in law with respect to the withholding and withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment and 
people living in the context of dementia will be familiar that they are allowed to refuse artificial hydration and nutrition. They're allowed to refuse pneumonia treatment, such as antibiotics and so on. And that'll lead to their death. And people argue, well, if you can make that kind of decision, why would you not be allowed to make a decision about MAID? Another benefit is there's real comfort that comes from knowing that MAID will be available. Even if you never access it, in the end, you get this therapeutic effect of a relief of suffering from knowing that should it come to a state of intolerable suffering for you, you'd be able to exit. Some will argue that the alternative is cruel because the alternative that is available to people right now is to stop eating and drinking and to die that way, which is not as comfortable um, is much more extended than made. And some would argue you actually have a longer life if you allow made in these circumstances because it doesn't force people to choose to have made before they lose capacity. And some people would be happy to, to continue living through a period of fluctuating capacity and then even some actual loss of capacity, um, but they can't have it. They gotta have made before they lose capacity in the way we're set up now. And as I said, you know, we've had multiple expert and parliamentary committee reports. They've wrestled with this issue and every single one of them has recommended that we permit advance requests for MAID. The Royal Society of Canada back in 2011, Provincial Territorial Expert Advisory Group 2015, a special joint committee of the House and the Senate in 2016, another special joint committee of the House and the Senate in 2023. They're all recommending advance requests. I would say civil society is very much, but not unanimously, in support of advance requests for MAID. Uh, the Alzheimer's Society, for instance, Parkinson Canada, Dying with Dignity Canada. I would note the Council of Canadians with Disabilities and Inclusion Canada have made statements against it. But I would also note that they are their statements against it are opposed to allowing substitute decision makers to request made, but that's not what's being considered. That's not what's being proposed in the context of advanced requests. It will always and only be the individual who for themselves makes the request. So I don't really consider those statements against as actually statements against made uh, advanced requests because they, they are actually against third party uh, consenting to made, which nobody's arguing for. Um, I did note the Alzheimer's Society and particularly relevant uh, for this McGill cares, so I thought I would highlight their position. Um, they state that the Alzheimer's Society of Canada supports the right of people living with dementia to make an advance request for a medically assisted death. The Alzheimer's Society recognizes that people living with dementia are individuals first and foremost. They have the same rights as everyone else, including the right to participate in decisions about their life and care. We respect the rights of all people with dementia to advocate for their individual best interests, including advocating for access to MAID through advance requests, and including not doing so. Um, but they, are, they, they have taken an autonomy position in relation to advance requests for MAID. I would also note that public support is massively, public opinion is massively in support of allowing advance requests. 82% support advance requests for those with a grievous and irremediable medical condition. 72% support advance requests even before a diagnosis with a grievous and irremediable medical condition. So the obvious next question is, will advance requests for MAID be permitted under the law in the future? And the answer to that question is yes and maybe. So the yes is Quebec, because by June 2025, and in fact, it's expected it'll happen within 2024, we'll have advanced requests um, 
in Quebec because they passed their own law. And they said that when you create an advance request, you have to be capable of giving consent to care and you must be suffering from a serious and incurable illness leading to incapacity to give consent to care. And the law also states that at the time of the administration of MAID, the person has to be incapable of giving consent to care due to their illness, must still meet all the eligibility criteria, which includes suffering, and must be exhibiting on a recurring basis the clinical manifestations related to their illness that they described in the request. So if somebody says, look, when I have these clinical manifestations, I can't get out of bed, I can't feed myself, I can't do X, Y, and Z, I can't pass a certain kind of a competency test, that's when I want MAID. Well, if they still have those clinical manifestations, that's when they could proceed with MAID. You also, under the Quebec law, will have to be in a medical state of advanced irreversible decline in capability that gives a competent professional cause to believe, based on the information at their disposal and according to their clinical judgment, that the patient is experiencing enduring and unbearable physical or psychological suffering that cannot be relieved under conditions considered tolerable. So those are the requirements for advanced request for made in Quebec sometime in 2024 at the latest in 2025. So they, they get a yes. The rest of Canada though gets a maybe. And there is a bill in front of the Senate, started in the Senate instead of the House, Senator Pamela Wallen's bill S-248, which would establish that a declaration made after a diagnosis of a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability, but no more than five years have elapsed since the declaration saying, I want made if I am in these circumstances. The person has to have lost capacity and they have to be suffering conditions related to their serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability that are identified clearly in the declaration. So I have to say this in my declaration and can be observed by the medical practitioner or nurse practitioner. So it can't be about some mental state that I have that, that a clinical, a medical or nurse practitioner can't determine. This bill has passed second reading in the Senate, did so in June 2023. Uh, it is waiting on the Senate Standing Committee on Legal and Constitutional Affairs. There is no indication uh, that it is coming up imminently. Um, and even if it came up and it got through the Senate, it would still have to get through the House. So uh, it's not at all clear that that is going to come about. Nonetheless, um, there is a, a lot of active advocacy to amend the criminal code to allow advance requests. Um, the advocacy is around people who are capable at the time of drafting after a diagnosis with a serious incurable illness, disease, or disability, and where the person is clearly articulated and there are observable indicators of intolerable suffering. There are a lot of people advocating for this, but it's not clear whether it's going to come or not. So the takeaways from this, I hope, are that people with dementia can be eligible for MAID. People with dementia are getting MAID. More people with dementia could be eligible for MAID if we had advance requests before all of the eligibility criteria are met. So before you're in a state of advanced state of decline and capability and before the intolerable suffering has set in. And many, many people with dementia and others who are fearful of dementia are advocating for law to change to allow such advance requests. 
Now, for more information, you can go to a website I maintain, eol.law.dal.ca. I try to keep it up to date with what's going on in the law, what has happened in the law, where are we, where are we going? Um, and it's available to everybody and the idea is that it is accessible public education. So with that, uh, thank you, Claire, for the invitation to participate. And I welcome people to uh, visit the website or email me if you have any further questions. Thank you so much for the presentation. I really, you use the word when unpack and you really did. I think this was the first time I clearly understand all of the uh, implications about this, um, about, you know, made. And and it I, I feel listening to you, it is extremely complex. And, and when I say complex in our field, many people do not understand the evolution of the disease, okay? like from start to finish like they really don't understand the evolution and you know the disease begins with a lot of cognitive issues and the end yes remains a lot of physical issues but i guess one of my my concerns would be that for somebody sitting down and making this request for themselves and not understanding the evolution of the disease they may choose to end their life too soon so for example there are, there are people who say well when i can no longer drive or I can no longer recognize my my wife or say my kids' names, that's it. But that may happen in the middle stages, right? So there's still a life left after that. So I kind of feel like, like or the question would be for, for you would be, should there be a responsibility to really properly educate people so that they understand because, because the question, like you said, is that at one point, do they suffer? Like, what does suffering mean? And taking away a driver's license shouldn't mean somebody ends their life, right? Because, so how, like, we have to educate. It's, I feel like it's different with cancer because at cancer, it's kind of clear and you could physically see it and the person could still express themselves. But with dementia, dementia is the evolution of the illness could is many, many years. And there are people who still can live a very good life even if they just can't drive or even as they lose their communication skills. So what role will we like, do you know what I'm doing? Do you understand what I'm trying to say in terms of educating the Absolutely. people? Absolutely. This will require a phenomenal amount of education. And I think there will be general public education to establish a base, a foundation of understanding um of of the disease and that we need regardless of whether we have advanced requests or not it's very important that we continue to educate as your organization does people with people who don't have dementia about dementia in the very specific circumstance of someone who has dementia and they're thinking about doing an advanced request i am a believer that that must be um developed in consultation with a clinician, with clinician with a deep understanding of dementia, so that they can walk the person through, here's how it works, here's how it unfolds for some people, for other people, because of course it's not the same for everybody. So it needs to be done in the context of a clinical relationship. I also think it should be done over time in that you come back to it because I think what was partly behind what you were saying too is that as your dementia develops, you may acclimatize to certain things and you may say to yourself, like at this point, I think, oh, if I can't drive, that's it, that's intolerable suffering. When I get to the point where I can't drive, I've adjusted, I've got supports in place and I'm like, no, this is fine. 
So we want to, I think, be returning to it on regular intervals to see where the person is in respect of their suffering and their understanding of what constitutes intolerable suffering. So I think that's really important with a disease like this that evolves and involves in an unpredictable, somewhat unpredictable way. Where I might not push back, but but express um, things a little bit differently than you were is is when you talk about the person can have a lot of life left after they reach the point that they've described as being the point of intolerable suffering. Well, for me, that's their choice, right? And I'm not saying you're not saying it's their choice, but I think it's just really important to emphasize that yes, you can get to a point where others might think there's a lot of good life left. Why would you have made now? But it's for the person to have decided what constitutes intolerable suffering for me when I reach that point um, and for them to articulate it really clearly and in a way that a clin a physicians and nurse practitioners can actually say, is this going on? And then be able to have made. I think the education would must must have to equally apply for the most importantly, I would say for the family members. And because you mentioned the moral distress that this could this could cause to healthcare professionals, but also the family, because at some point it will become like, you know, I will live this with my mother. Right. And at what point do I say, OK, I need to now respect her wishes and that's it. Right. And am I that question that you're questioning yourself? Am I making the right decision or for those healthcare professionals? And again, I really feel it comes down to education, like really understanding at what phase is it no longer, you know, at what phase is it too much? Right. And and mm -hmm. I, I think about, you know, um, I think the majority of people are in a long term care facility by the time they get to the last phase of the illness. Yes, there are people that are being taken care of at home, but I think the majority are. And then, you know, you mentioned that there are some healthcare facilities that they will not like they, you know, it's against their religious beliefs or their institutional beliefs. So that could also be a challenge, correct? Like how, what happens if they say that they, 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 they put this in their advanced care directives, but then the institution says no. Right. So let me say one thing about what you mentioned about educating families, and then we'll go to the, to the forced transfer, uh, because I want to expand on what you said in the sense and agree with you that education of the family is critically important. But what I want to say is, I think it's education about all end of life care. Like we're just talking about MAID today, but of course MAID needs to be situated in the context of all the end of life care decisions. And some of that's about when do you want to stop this kind of treatment? When do you want to stop that kind of treatment? Do you want palliative sedation? all aspects of it and made is just one of the options and I think we need to not exceptionalize it even though you know we're talking about it today and only it today but we have to do that in the context of education but when we're planning that education for families we want to plan it in terms of all end-of-life care um, so to the forced transfer issue if somebody is in a facility which is refusing to allow me to happen within those walls um, it depends on which province you're in what will happen. So in Quebec, for instance, Quebec's very lucky, you know, there's McGill in Quebec, under Quebec law, hospitals are not allowed to opt out. Their palliative hospices are not allowed to opt out. They can't say to someone, you cannot have made here. So people need to know and understand their rights in that regard. 
in Nova Scotia, if you're in a hospital, we're lucky for a different reason. Um, so Quebec got, achieved this through legislation saying you have to allow it. Nova Scotia just happens that all the hospitals are owned and operated by the Nova Scotia Health Authority, which means they can't be pursuing a religious agenda. Uh, and so made can happen there. In other provinces, it's uh, much more complicated. And there, you know, in British Columbia, for instance, people may have seen on the news the story of Sam O'Neill, a young woman who had cancer and had to be, she had a forced transfer out of St. Paul's Hospital, which meant to another facility because St. Paul's is run by a Catholic health organization. Um, she had to be transferred and she was in excruciating pain. And in order to manage the pain, she had to be so sedated that once she got to the final destination, she wasn't able to have her family and friends there in, in communion with her. Um, as she uh, had her maid. And so I, I just think it's deeply troubling that that's allowed. Um, what can people do? Know your rights so that if you're being told, if you're in a publicly funded, not faith-based institution and you're being told you can't have it, say, uh, yes, I can. Yes, <laughs> no, this is not okay. Push back. Um, if you're in a province that has exempt facilities think about it in advance as much as you can try and figure out how you could arrange for a transfer know where people can be transferred to um, because you can have made anywhere um, so it may be that you're in a place where there isn't another facility that could accept you but you could for instance be transferred home or you could be transferred to a doctor's office um, people have had made, I was just at a talk this morning and one of the clinicians was talking about having provided made on a beach on the South shore of Nova Scotia. Um, and so, especially with dementia, um, if you, you know, if you can be transferred without pain, which may be more common than for people who ha are dying of cancer, because that's, can be, can be incredibly painful to be transferred. Do, do know that you can go elsewhere. It doesn't have to be that it has to be a hospital. So it's part of planning. Um, talk, you know, if you're if you're ever told by somebody, oh no, you can't have you can't have made, and it's actually the clinician is an objector. It, almost everywhere you can, there are navigators, there are made programs. So like in Nova Scotia, you call a number, and it's available on the website, the Nova Scotia Health website. You call the number, and the num and the, and people there will talk you through it and help you understand. Well, okay, where can I get it? How can I get it? We want, and and then they can they can advocate for you. So I guess the 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 key message is don't necessarily take no for an answer if what is behind the no is not you're not eligible. I mean, obviously, if you're not eligible, a no is a no. But if it's really an objection on the part of the clinician or the facility, um, you can it's going to be the patient's family. You can um, you can advocate uh, and find solutions. People should not face barriers. I feel like so much education needs to be more available for people with regards to palliative care services, you know, um, even mm -hmm. for dementia, because we hear about palliative care at home for, again, for cancer. But, you know, the whole, our, our healthcare system in Quebec, and especially with the language issues also, are, are so complex. And just people understanding how to access basic home care support uh, it, it, people don't know how to do it. And then let alone, you know, I think there's this misconception that palliative care is only offered for people who have cancer, but not for dementia, right? And 
So, you know, to be able to stay at home and receive palliative care would be, it would be so important. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that there, there's a lot, there's a lot of work to do uh, with that. And, and, and again, in Quebec, making the information available and in, you know, right now it's hard to sometimes access information in English, but, you know, even in, there's a, we have a very multicultural population. So for them to understand, um, so having yeah. a navigator would be, you know, would be ideal to help. Yeah, the maid, the maid navigators are um, incredible, incredibly valuable. One thing I would note, given what you just said, is that actually the legalization, decriminalization of maid has led to improvements in palliative care uh, because there is this focus um, on ensuring that all the alternatives have been explored. Um, so people are more aware, perhaps, of palliative care by virtue of going through a maid request. And we do see that where somebody comes for a maid request, they haven't, they didn't actually understand or know about palliative care. They get directed to palliative care because you got to explore the alternatives and they get to the point, oh, that's actually, this works fine for me. I don't need, I don't need maid or maybe I won't have maid now, but I'm going to have it later. Um, And so I think that that's one of the wonderful benefits of the very bright spotlight that's been shone on maid rightly so, because we have to figure out how to do it well. And people are thinking about education and they're thinking about delivery systems and so on. And what that can help us with is better understanding of palliative care and all the other end of life options. And so expand it out because you're absolutely right. Palliative care has historically been so narrow, but in the past number of years, it's been it's been expanding out in, in, in remarkable ways. And, and yes, a message to the public is palliative care is not just for cancer. If you have a different condition, you can, you can ask for pursue palliative care. Ask about it. If it's, if it's not offered to you, it may be because the clinicians don't actually know, but ask about it. No matter what your condition is, say, is there something can be done here? Because that's comfort, right? It's about, it's about comfort and care and everybody can do with comfort and care. Jocelyn, I cannot thank you enough for being my guest. Um, You are clearly one of our country's foremost experts uh, in this field. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, you know, educate and inform uh, our viewers. And also thank you for sharing your website and your email. I'm I'm sure you'll have people uh, reaching out to you, but really thank you for taking the time to be with us today. It's really my pleasure. Thanks. So this webcast is an initiative of the McGill University Dementia Education Program, which is funded by private donations. If you would like to make a contribution to our program, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash dementia. And if you would like to join our mailing list to be notified about upcoming episodes of McGill Cares, as well as all of our other support programs and other educational resources, please send us an email to dementia at mcgill.ca or you can also subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thank you for watching.